0: I only preach one topical sermon a year. That's mainly because I'm really not a big fan of topical sermons because a preacher can get in a lot of trouble preaching a topical sermon. What people typically do is they try to find proof texts to prove their thesis of the sermon and they take scripture out of context. And so that's why I don't like them. I usually preach in an expository fashion. This is the one day of the year, every year, Easter, if you go back and listen to all of our sermons since the inception of the church, that I will preach a topical sermon. And that's because, mainly, a lot of unsaved people turn up to church, whether it be on Zoom. I see probably more than, more than half the churches on Zoom today. And in person, more unsaved and unchurched, people show up or are brought to church by their Christian friends and family and so that's why I do a topical sermon on Easter and it's it's an evangelistic sermon so I just wanted to explain that because there are people that are probably going to be thinking Mike you typically don't preach this way so anyway happy Easter everybody <laughs> although I'm going I'm going to make uh, reference to Paul's letter to the Romans many times in this sermon. The sermon itself is not a continuation in our series on Romans in any way. But as I said before, it's an evangelistic sermon. Um, Two weeks ago, however, I will say this about Romans, okay, and about our series on Romans. Two weeks ago, we were in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, and we learned that this is Um, beneficial for us today, we learned that we who were once under God's wrath now have peace and reconciliation. Remember that? We have peace and reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that certainly applies to Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. We also learned what it means to stand, stand in uh, the God-given grace that saves us. We are saved through God's initiated grace alone by our faith, which are both the grace and the faith given to us by God as gifts. By and through those gifts, or by and through the work that our lord jesus christ did on that cross as the once and for all atoning sacrifice for our sins the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world praise his holy name that's the gospel in a nutshell everything i everything i just said and it's easy for us or easy easy enough for us as christians To see that, understand it, comprehend it, believe it, and live it. But what about those who um, are out there today, even this morning, who are listening to this sermon and who don't think they need Christ or church? If you ask these people if they are going to heaven when they die... The majority of them will tell you that they are, or at least they think they are. And when you ask them how they know that, they will tell you it's because, quote, they are basically a good person, end quote. We've talked about this before recently from the pulpit here at Abiding Grace. And if you challenge them in their belief that they are going to heaven... They will go on to tell you about all the good things they've done and still do as proof that they are ideal candidates for entrance into heaven. They will say things like, I'm a volunteer fireman with Pastor Steve. I save lives in my community, and I put my own life on the line to do it. And are you going to stand there and try to tell me that I'm not going to go to heaven? Seriously? Another person might say, I volunteer at the food bank with Patty once a month. Or I cut the grass for the two widows on my street so that they don't have to pay somebody to do it. Or yet another person might say, you know, I don't hurt anybody. I mind my own business. I keep to myself. I don't bother anybody. That's how I know. I'm basically a good person, and I'm going to go to heaven. I'm just basically chill, in today's vernacular. An all-around good guy. These are just some examples of um, the things that people try to give you as an explanation, or even convince themselves as to why they're going to heaven then there are those who think they might be going to hell because of the way they have lived their lives, and these people kind of wear that as a badge of honor, don't they? If you've met any of them, go like this: so I know you're alive. Thank you. They'll say, "Yeah, you know, I'm fine with hell. I don't want to be in heaven anyway." with all those holy rollers that they'll usually throw in some profanity and they'll say, all my friends are going to be in hell anyway and we're just going to party for eternity. We're going to party. At one time in my life, I was of that opinion, even though I attended a Catholic school, and we read scripture every day, I was of the opinion that I would be partying in hell with my friends too. And do you want to know what's funny about that? My parents had always taught me the complete opposite. We went to church every Saturday night without fail, and the only time that I was allowed to miss church was when I had a fever. That was it. My parents often talked to me, often talked to me about the good Lord. That's what they called him. The good Lord and how he had led them through so many difficult times in their lives through the Great Depression and poverty. Both of them had to dumpster dive when they were kids just to get enough to eat. And the good Lord helped my father to to endure physical child abuse as a kid. And later in their married life, the good Lord helped them through job loss. They almost lost everything. And the good Lord helped them through sickness and hospitalizations. These are the things they would tell me. And despite hearing the stories of God's faithfulness in their lives, I still wanted to go to hell and party with my friends. I did. Where did I get that from? Surely I didn't get it from my parents. I got it from, first of all, my own depraved nature. And I got it from listening to other people in my life. I believed this because I was enjoying my own sinful ways and didn't want to give those ways want being the operative word there how many of you know that in an instant God can give you a new want or new wants a new set of desires wants and desires he will enable you folks trust me on this He will enable you to shout from the housetops with the Apostle Paul. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. I'm getting ahead of myself. My point thus far is whether or not you think you're going to heaven because you're basically a good person or you want to go to hell like I did because you think it's an eternal party. I've got news for you. Both positions are wrong. Your good works cannot get you into heaven and hell is not a place for partying. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Pastor Scott read it, that hell is a place of what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of horror. It's a place of eternal separation from Almighty God. Here's the problem. The holders or the bearers of these positions or these opinions concerning heaven and hell dangerously assume, they assume that they are somehow either the creator of their own destiny or an influencer of their own destiny. And I'm here to tell you this morning that you have no influence or bearing in any way as to what as as to whether or not you will go to heaven or hell you'll see that by the end of the sermon you certainly have no corner on what takes place in heaven and hell if your depiction of heaven and your depiction of hell is not rooted in the truths of scripture then you have no clue as to what awaits you in eternity. If you think you do, then may I ask, who or what is your authority on this issue? Is it your opinion? If it is, what do you base your opinion on? please allow me for the next several minutes to tell you what the Bible has to say about your eternal destiny. The scriptures, the Bible, is your authoritative source on these matters, not your opinions and not mine. It's the Bible which is made up of 66 different books that have been found on four different continents over a 5,000-year period, penned by men of many different walks of life, and when brought together, you've heard me say this before many times, when brought together in one place, from the first book to the last, from Genesis to Revelation, the predominant theme is the redemption of man, made possible by the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historicity of which has been proven time and time again by secular historians as well as Christian theologians, that this book is, and this book is only, your authority on matters of heaven and hell. Now, some of you at this point might be be thinking, I don't want to hear this garbage. You very well may be thinking that. To which I answer, what are you afraid of? Just humor me for a minute. What's it going to hurt to listen? Let me start by telling you what you should be afraid of. Very afraid of. Your impending and looming death. Because we're all going to die. When I looked at the obituaries last week, I saw many, not a few, many, 20 to 35 year olds mixed in with those 75 to 85 year olds who had died last week just in Pittsburgh. Death is no respecter of age. It's no respecter of how good and bad you are, of what kind of works you've done or haven't done. You could walk out of here today and die. You could die of a heart attack, a car accident, a deranged shooter, or an aneurysm. Thinking that you're invincible, especially you young people who have a tendency to do this, thinking that you are invincible under a certain age or position in life. That's your first mistake. Thinking that you know more about heaven and hell than the scriptures dictate is your second mistake. The fact of the matter is, you cannot resist the hand of Almighty God. There's nothing you can do to delay your death or change the circumstances of your death. God will take you when God wants to take you. You can run 10 miles a day and then trip over your own two feet, smack your head off your kitchen counter and die. It happens every day. Every day. Anytime that you start feeling invincible, I have a challenge for you. Anytime you start feeling invincible or you think you're the creator of your own destiny, go on your smartphone, download a free, there's a ton of them, free police scanner app. Listen to the scanner frequency. For the city of Pittsburgh, just listen for 20 minutes to see how many people die, almost die, how many people are robbed, stabbed, shot, how many houses catch on fire, how many home invasions, carjackings, and how many people wreck and die in freak accidents, how many people on that scanner are having heart attacks, are not able to breathe, or who have fallen, and yes, can't get up. The commercial is very true. In fact, the majority, anybody that's an EMT or, or paramedic knows that the majority of the calls you go on are people that have fallen and can't get up. And these things, folks, are all going on At the same time, in different geographical areas throughout the city. If you really want to have fun, listen on a Friday night, a Saturday night, or when there's a full moon. Talk to a nurse that works in the ER when there's a full moon. And they'll tell you that that night is very different from all the nights in the rest of the month. If you do this, I guarantee you that you will be quite surprised to find out that people have no control over their lives. No control over their destiny whatsoever. Only God controls these things. But you don't need to listen necessarily to the police scanner to learn that. You can learn that you can learn that God controls everything by just looking at the passages of scripture. Humor me for a second, okay? He controls the falling of sparrows, Matthew 10:29, the rolling of dice, Proverbs 16:33, the slaughter of his people, Psalm 44:11, the decision of kings Proverbs twenty one one, the failing of eyesight, Exodus four eleven, the sickness of children, second Samuel twelve fifteen, the loss and gain of money, first Samuel two seven, the suffering of saints, first Peter four four nineteen, the completion of travel plans, James four fifteen, the persecution of Christians, Hebrews twelve four through seven, the repentance of souls, two Timothy two twenty five, the gift of faith. Philippians 1.29, the pursuit of holiness, Philippians 3, 12 and 13, the growth of believers, Hebrews 6.3, the giving of life and the taking in death, 1 Samuel 2.6, and the crucifixion of his son, Acts 4, 27 and 28, from the smallest thing to the greatest thing, good and evil, happy and sad, pagan and Christian, pain and pleasure, God governs all of them for His good purposes. Isaiah 46.10 In that paragraph I just quoted, I got from John Piper. Just want you to know that so I can give credit where credit's due. So, here's my question for you this morning on Resurrection Sunday morning, Where are you going to go when you die? That's my question for you. Some of you, my favorites actually. In campus ministry, my favorites. When I was on the campuses, atheists and agnostics. If you are of an atheistic, that means you don't believe in God mindset. You may be thinking, well... I just believe that it's lights out when you die. Annihilation is what they call it. You cease to exist and you remember nothing because you're dead. Your soul does not go on, nothing happens. It's just lights out, it's over. That's what an atheist believes. If you truly believe that, listen carefully. If you truly believe that, then there's no reason whatsoever why your life, your actions should involve any morality at all, none. If it's lights out when you die, then you should be living the most hedonistic, sinful, pleasure-filled lifestyle known to man, and you should be enjoying Every stinking minute of it. It shouldn't matter to you at all if you hurt someone. Because after all, according to you, we cease to exist. And when we die and, and everything ceases, nobody that you did wrong to is going to be able to remember that you did wrong to them. Their memory is going to be wiped out. They're dead. Consequently, it shouldn't matter to you how you treat them in this life either, in this world either. You're playing the hypocrite if you care. I'll take it a step further. Even your children should be fair game for you to use for your own purposes according to your brilliant atheistic philosophy. They are going to cease, think about it for a second with me, they are going to cease consciousness when they die and subsequently forget everything that has ever happened to them on this earth and so why not exploit them now? for your own gains. I mean you must concur that any moral compass that you have is not only rooted in a Judeo-Christian ethic but furthermore any moral ethic should be unreasonable to you because any outcomes of your good moral behavior by your own belief system by your own ideology Those outcomes will be snuffed out at the moment of death. So have at it, man. Have at it. And live like a good atheist. The fact of the matter is that if you fancy yourself as an agnostic, someone who doubts that there's a God, or an atheist, someone who believes there isn't a God, you espouse the easiest position to refute if everyone ceases to exist when they die, if there is no afterlife, if we all lose all manner of awareness when we die, then nothing, and I mean nothing, on this earth, and nothing in your life matters for anything. Does everybody understand that? You can make no case whatsoever for submitting to any moral absolute. None. Back to my original question. Where are you going to go when you die? Answer. Ready? It all depends on how God sees you when he looks at you. Will he see you as good or will he see you as bad? I'm not talking about your works. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50, Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And further along, Matthew 25, 32, Jesus said, all the nations will be gathered before him, before Christ, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So Jesus is very clear here, among other places, that on that day, capital D, the day of his second coming and subsequent judgment, there will be a separation between the evil and the righteous, between the sheep and the goats, metaphorically speaking. Now, like I said before, you may be thinking, well, you know, I'm basically a good person, so I assume I'll be among the righteous or among the sheep. I certainly would not be among the evil, or the goats. Perhaps not so fast with that conclusion. Perhaps you should think about that a little further. The Bible says that no one stands righteous before God. No one stands good before God. Without Christ, you could stand righteous before God and good before God with Christ, but without Christ you can't. What's God going to look at when he sees you? Remember, that was my question. Allow me to explain it further. The scriptures are clear in numerous passages. Even the writings of the early church concur with these scriptures, which say in no uncertain terms that all men are born in original sin. Original sin means that sin is derived from our origin. Plain and simple. It means that sinfulness permeates every person from birth. Every single person that has been born on this earth, except for Christ Jesus, has sinned. The phrase original sin was coined by St. Augustine to describe this scriptural fact that we are born into a nature that is enslaved to sin. A totally depraved nature that simply cannot avoid sinning. Why? Well, because the first man, Adam, sinned, and the penalty of his sin was death for him and for everyone born in his lineage, including you and me. Adam sinned and died, and so we all sin and die. You're just a ray of sunshine this morning, Mike. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. This is so, listen carefully, because God is just. And as such, he must exercise just judgment upon those who sin against him, or he wouldn't be true to his unchanging attributes of his character namely justice and righteousness. He must render judgment. So simply put, we are not sinners because we sin, but we are sinners because we are sinners who are born with a nature enslaved by sin. The state of original sin and total depravity that we find ourselves in is the result of the fall, and as such, as such, it includes what we call total, total inability. Total inability means that without God initiating salvation for us, we are unable to believe in him. And we are unable to come to him. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me Draws him. You've heard me say this before. The Greek word there for draw means to drag. No man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me drags him, kicking and screaming. Why? Because he loves his sin. and He loves to wallow in it. God's got to change his heart. We'll get to that in a minute. We are totally unable to come to Christ on our own. That's the total inability. Why? Because when you're spiritually dead, you can do nothing. Paul says this. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. He says, "We are dead in our trespasses and sins and as such we walk and we walked past tense and follow the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work. In the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all live in the passions. Of our flesh. Carrying out the desires. Of the body and the mind. And are listen by nature. By nature. Children of wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. God's wrath. rests upon us according to scripture this is the state you are born in if you don't know Christ and you're not only dead in your trespasses and sins but I just quoted Paul as saying that by nature by that totally depraved enslaved to sin nature you are under God's wrath he owes you one for your sin And he's going to come for the payment. He's going to exact it from somebody. Meaning, God's wrath rests upon us because we've sinned against him. And again, you've heard us say it a million times in Romans, God's wrath must be appeased or he is not just and he is not righteous but guess what the apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit also writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 and 21 he writes this for as by a man Adam came death by a man Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. That's Easter. That's the gospel. In Romans chapter 5, 18 through 21, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Christ's, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, that is Christ's, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, because you had the law, You knew what sin was. Remember Paul said, I didn't know that that committing adultery was bad. That was a sin until the law told me that it was a sin. Okay? That's what Paul means there. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now remember, I said earlier, that God must regenerate our hearts in order for us to have the ability, because there's that total inability, in order for us to have the ability to believe at all. Why? Well, remember, we just read Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins without Christ. In fact, the scriptures are very clear that in our total depravity, listen, listen, In our total depravity, we are unresponsive to God. If you are listening to that police scanner that I challenge you to listen to, you will hear the paramedics arrive on the scene, and they will tell dispatch that the person they've been called to save is currently unresponsive. They are showing no signs of life. That is how we are when we are dead in our trespasses and sins without Christ. But thank God the medics don't stop there. They don't don't cut and run, pack up their bag and go back to the station because somebody's unresponsive. The paramedics, listen, they insert themselves into the situation on behalf of the patient who is unresponsive. And they aim with every tool in their arsenal to make that patient's heart beat again so that they can become responsive. And God does the same thing with us, but he takes it one huge leap further. He does not resuscitate our existing unresponsive heart that is dead in its trespasses and sins. No, he takes that heart out and replaces it with a new heart that is alive and well. The Lord said to the Israelites through the prophet Ezekiel that he would put a new heart and a new spirit within his people, that he would remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36:26. Very easy to remember. 36:26. The Lord will do the same thing for you today. Look. As stands right now. If you don't know Christ, if God's wrath because of your sin rests upon you, then I'm sorry to say that you're condemned. And if you choose to remain in your sin, living for yourself and for the devil and for the world, you will be eternally separated from the Lord and will spend eternity in hell. And there will not be a party. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. However, if you feel right now that God's kindness which the Bible says leads us to repentance. If you feel God's kindness is leading you to repentance, then now is the time to ask the Lord in prayer, in the stillness of your heart. Ask him. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. Perfect time to pray and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And He will. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, that this blood would be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood was poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's exactly what happened. And that is what Easter or Resurrection Sunday, as I like to call it, is all about. That's what it's about. It's not about Easter eggs and bunnies. Christ Jesus, think about this, the second member of the triune Godhead, the eternal only Son of the Father, came to earth, and manifest Himself in this stinking human flesh so that He could identify with us in every way and yet be different from us in one way, having lived a sinless life. The perfect, blemish-free Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, went to that cross And there took on the just wrath of God, His Father, for your sins in your place, atoning for those sins so that you can be reconciled to God in Him, in Christ, so that we could be at peace with the Father, the Father who looks at us now, remember I said it's how it's how God looks at you, who looks at us now and sees Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us as we stand before him, forgiven through the broken body and spilled blood of Christ. And that broken body died so that we could live unto God. And that reconciliation and peace was completed. It was a done deal when he rose from the dead, thereby defeating death for us. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. We are righteous if we're in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses, unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19. And all you have to do to obtain eternal life with God by way of Jesus Christ his Son, through the Holy Spirit, is believe. That's all you have to do. Believe that he did it for you. Because he did. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Listen, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for you on that cross as the atoning sacrifice for your sins, then the wrath of God no longer remains on you. And you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. And when God looks at you, he will see, God's, he will see Christ's righteousness in you. And you will go to heaven when you die. say amen.